we're jumping into, back into this series that we started last September, that if you think back, if you can remember this far back, we started last September with this same idea, God being Alpha and Omega. We jumped into Revelation, we looked at the three phrases, the three different times in Revelation, which he called out, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the God from beginning and first and last. I am he who was, who is, and who is to come. And, and all of these different phrases were repeated three different times through the, through the book of Revelation, but that sent us on a study of the whole Bible. And so it took us about, a, well, most of a year to kind of walk through some of the highlights of the scripture. And so we went, we started in Genesis 1 through 3, and we looked at God creates. God creates. And so we saw him as the source and origin of everything in the heavens and earth. And by the time he was done creating on the seventh day, everything was good. And then we were able to see that the reason everything's not good today is because we sinned. Mankind rebelled against God, ate the fruit in which they were told not to eat, um, but, but he, he continued to work with them. And that led us then to the next section of our study, God covenant. So we saw the creation, and then we saw him covenant, that God bound himself in covenant relationship, in, in intimate fellowship, and with promises to his people uh, throughout history. It starts all the way back at a covenant with creation, and it, between him and Adam. Adam was the representative or the covenant head. Uh, he was the, he's the representative. And so the, once Adam sinned, we're all in Adam. And so we all are counted in sin. Uh, next, we see him covenant with Noah, then with Abraham, then Israel. And Moses is the covenant mediator, not the covenant head, but the covenant mediator of his covenant with Israel. He's the one that, that went between God and, and Israel and, and he told Israel what God said, and he told God what Israel said, and he, so he mediated that covenant, but he's not the covenant rep, rep, representative. And so you don't say, I'm in Moses, because you're already in Adam, and that he, he's just a mediator of this particular covenant. So God covenanted then with Israel, then we see a covenant with David, and we studied his promises to David that he was going to establish David's throne forever, that David would have a son. And he would establish that son's throne forever. And then finally, the new covenant that we saw as the fulfillment of all these covenant promises in Jesus. So God creates, God covenants with his people in creation, and God commands. We moved then to God's commands. And we didn't look at it this one long, but we'd been seeing it in every one of the covenants. God had an expectation of every person he entered into covenant with. He had an expectation of them to, to live a certain way, to represent his righteousness, to live in obedience to his instruction. Some of those, some of those commands were much more explicit. Uh, so for the old covenant, there was a whole law code, a, a code that went with the old covenant uh, that people were to abide by under that covenant to maintain that. Um, even now, as Christians, though we are no longer under the old covenant and under the old covenant law, we are under the law of Christ. So very, very similar in lots of ways, still representative of God's righteousness. But we don't look to the old covenant law and all of its, all of its stuff to, to live our lives today righteously because God's commands, though they are uh, equivalent and similar in many ways, there's many things that Christ has fulfilled so fully that we don't repeat them. So God commands, he has expectation. And then specifically for his new covenant people, we saw God's commission. God commissioning us to be lights in the world. God commissioning us to go and make him known. To stand up and say, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, not, I'm, not, I'm no longer a slave of fear. I'm a child of God. To make him known. Uh, so he's commissioned his people. And that's really true of all of his covenant people. They were to be not just representatives in their obedience to him, but representatives in their Voice. They were to be lights in darkness and things like that. And that's, that's absolutely true of all of his people from all time. We were commissioned to be his agents in this world. In the same way that we were created as his image bearers, we are to continue to bear that image as he restores it, restores it to us in Christ. So, so that's what we've worked through. And then we took a break over the summer. But, but just trying to call all this into your mind as much as is possible. Uh, and, and with the knowledge, we, we took a break with the knowledge that we're looking forward to the last section in which God consummates. And that's really what we are beginning today. 
we are going to look at the fact that from creation, he's always planned new creation. From creation, he made promises that he will fulfill. And we're going to be studying that from the book of Revelation. Originally, the plan was, hey, we're just going to hit some highlights. We're going to get some big pieces of it. And we're going to just generally demonstrate God being the Alpha and the Omega, God from beginning to end. And the more I dug in, the more I realized that to pull anything out and have a section, I was going to do so much explaining. Because every one of you come into this room right now with a view of what Revelation is. I want to say this carefully because I don't, want to, I don't want to bash on what you might have learned from other teachers and preachers. But the common view of what Revelation is and what it was actually intended for, I think, are at odds. So Revelation is not a book so that we can decipher the, the, the times that we, in which we live. It's not given to us, in, in fact, to decipher what season we're in. So, so think Ecclesiastes. There's a season for everything, a time for building up, a time for tearing down, a time for living, a time for dying, a time for... And God uses all of this with an eternal focus to make things beautiful in their time. That's the Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You can walk through all of those things. There's times and seasons for all of that stuff. And what lots of people do is they come to Revelation and they try to figure out what season they're in and whether or not Jesus is coming back now, like today, or in a year. And they try to interpret their news headlines based on what they read in Revelation. The problem with that is, is that Revelation wasn't written just to us. In fact, just to be as honest as possible, American Christians aren't even mentioned in the book of Revelation specifically. John didn't know that you would exist when he wrote this letter and when he received this revelation. And yet, a lot of times that's where we start and try to figure out what revelation is all about. So it was going to require so much explanation to deal with the common views, the popular views, the, 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 the views that we just kind of catch. You know, like if you've read the Left Behind series or even heard about the Left Behind series, you have a view of what revelation is. And I'm not trying to be rude to those brothers, because I do believe they're brothers, but I think their view is off. And I think because of it, we've, we've used Revelation for something it wasn't intended to be used, and many of us are afraid of it, because we think it was written to scholars that are supposed to define all the symbols for us, when it was actually written to a bunch of Christian people who were less educated than we. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to work through it, seeking to really see what the letter has to say. We're going to try to stay out of the weeds as much as it's possible, because sometimes that ends up in needless debate and argument. Not that I'm afraid of debate. Let's have them, but let's not just do them during this time. Let's look at what Revelation was given to us for. And so that's what we're going to do, to see God finish the work he began, to fulfill his promises and do what only he can do. So that's where we're going to be. We want you studying it. We don't want you just listening to me. I want you studying it. I'm going to try to provide you resources all along the way. There's a post coming out this week with several resources that will help you. We want you to take these scripture journals home. Uh, it's not the first time we've done this, but, but maybe of all the times we've done this, this is, the, this is the letter. This is the book that we're going to study that I would encourage you. Be in it. Don't wait for Sunday. Um, I, I hope God will use me in your life and, and whoever preaches alongside. I pray every week that he'll use us in your life. But the Spirit is the one who does this work. And believe it or not, every one of you brothers and sisters have that Spirit. And he will lead and guide as we walk through this together. So please be studying along with us. Today we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Dig in, really see God consummate his kingdom, to, to begin to see, to set us on a trajectory to see God consummate his kingdom, promises to, to finish the work that he has started. So, Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 8, we're actually going to be here this week and next week trying to set a solid foundation for what's ahead. So, we're going to read, we're going to pray, and then we are going to jump in. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that saw. Who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time 
is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed uh, us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, as we step into this, I, I, do, I, I just would ask that you would fulfill your promise to your people, that by your spirit you would bring a knowledge of wisdom and revelation, a, a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are, what you have done, and what you are doing, so that we would know the hope to that which we have been called, to, to know the, the glorious inheritance, the, the, the beautiful and, and immeasurable power that's been worked on our behalf in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would work in and through this season and this series as we study your word. I pray that you would do exactly through it what you've always said you would do. Grow us closer to you. Conform us to the image of your son. Enlighten us so that we would be a people who are marked by joy and confidence in who you are. How, how, where would we look except to your word? So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this letter is a revelation from our triune God to his covenant people about his work to consummate his kingdom promises for his glory and our good. Let me read that phrase again. It's kind of the, the, the thought or the point that I'm going to be breaking out the rest of the service. This letter is a revelation from our triune God to his covenant people about his work to consummate his kingdom promises for his glory and our good. The whole purpose of this study, I've kind of already touched on it, the whole purpose of us starting this back in September was to see God, to know God, to find confidence in the Lord, to recognize him working throughout all of history, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who will be, the God who's God over all things. I mean, you just consider the world we live in, how unstable and uncertain it is. Now, I, I, I know that there's... Many years that we've lived in which we think, oh man, this is, we got it pretty good. Life is simple. Life is refined. I make plans. I, I, I followed through with those plans. And in the last three years, we have been, it has been proven time and time again, our world is not as stable as we like to believe. We are not as in control of this world and the circumstances of it as we would like to think. We do not get the power or the say that we want to have. The people that we have lived among that seem so accepting of us for so long are less and less accepting every day. The people who represented us, that we've cast our votes for, that we've counted on to do the things that we wanted them to do have demonstrated to us time and time again they have a different agenda than the work of the Lord even as they might have used his name. Over and over, we've seen it. I, I think, I think I, I'm certain I've shared this with you, but even as, as last summer, as my father is in the last days of his life and he is coming to die, I am wrestling with things about his life and his testimony and things that he had claimed and works that he had done as a church planter, as a pastor, and then for so much of his life, he lived in what I can only say was opposition or an opposite way to that. And I'm wrestling at the end of his days, where is he today? And I didn't know, <clears throat> I didn't think that I would be asked to speak at his funeral. I didn't ask to, be, to, to speak at his funeral. 
But I thought, I know my family, and I know how much they would want him to... I, I know that this is a meaningful thing. It's an important thing. And so I was concerned because who would speak at his funeral? <clears throat> you see, even in the emotion of it, that remains how hard a thing that would have been in the day. But I wrestled with the Lord over that. How, how can I stand and speak of his life? I can talk about a lot that he did early on. But what about the end of his life? I wrestled hard with how, how can I provide any encouragement? How, what, what can I say? Because I've not known, I've not really known the man that lived the life, and, and, and I mean, I saw him, and I have vague memories of him, but I've not known that man. How can I stand in front of my family to provide comfort and provide? And a phrase came to my mind, and it's been on my mind ever since, I don't know, but I know the God who knows. I don't know where he stood on the day of his death, but I know the God who knows. I don't know how to provide comfort to a people who are hurting. But I know the God who knows. I don't know how to provide hope to a people who recognize that the world is crumbling around them. And they, they've clung to it for years. But, but what will they do? I don't know. But I know the God who knows. And it was my heart behind this whole series is to put us in a place where we can't say we figured it out or that we got all the answers that we can describe everything that's happening around us. I don't know. We don't know. But we know the God who knows. That's been the heart behind this whole series. And it's the heart behind why we now turn to Revelation. Because he gave it to his people. Not so that they depend upon their own knowledge, but so that they depend upon the God who knows. This is his revelation to us. This is his revelation to his people. This is his revelation so that we will know he knows. And that's the whole idea. That he starts off in this introduction and gives us that understanding. I don't know how it's going to end. But I know the God who knows. I don't know when it's going to end. But I know the God who knows. I don't know how everybody's going to fall out at the end. But I know the God who knows. And he's revealed this to us. The, 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 the letter opens. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the making known. In fact, the word is apocalypsis. What do you think of when you think of apocalypsis? Boom, explosion, right? The end of the world as we know it. We've, we've co-opted that word in English, the apocalypse, right? Like all of a sudden we think of these horrific things. It's actually just a, a general Greek word that means revelation. In fact, like some theological word book defines it, something that is made fully known, a full disclosure. Making it, making it known to us. The Vines um, Expository Dictionary describes it or defines it as an uncovering or an unveiling. And so pulling back of what's, what's uh, uh, the covers that are, that are hiding, the, 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 it's the unwrapping of the present, right? Like that's the idea. It's a mystery we can't find clues to. So, so God's not given us this book if we approach it this way, that this is a mystery, and we're supposed to figure out the mystery, it makes us detectives. No, God is, is Hercule Poirot, who is standing at the end of the movie, giving you all the answers. He's already, he, he knows it all, except he didn't have to figure it out like Hercule does. He's the one who's God over all of it. He's giving us the answers. He's revealing the truth. And the story is too grand for us to figure it out. I mean, just, just, just think of the little perspective you have. I mean, I, I'm a young earth creationist. We, we dealt with this in the, in the creation series. I, I know some of you may not be. You may take an older view, but 6,000 6, to 10,000 years, and I know, you know, oh, man, that guy's backwards. He doesn't understand science. I just understand God. <laughs> he can do what he wants to do. So, so I'm reading the Bible, and I believe God can make a mature world like he made mature people, right? Like that, so... Anyway, we don't have to go into all that. That's the, 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 staying out of the weeds. Sorry. 
But even if it's the young earth, right? Let's just say as young as absolutely possible based on timelines of the Bible. This is 6,000 years, as absolutely young as possible. What's our view of history? What's, what's our view of the way things are? You know, I stumbled onto a video this week. You'll appreciate this. I stumbled onto a video this week on YouTube that, that people are dead set on making Oregon or part of Oregon part of Idaho because they don't like the politics of Oregon and so they want to secede out of Oregon and, make, and become citizens of Idaho. You know how frustrated people are getting over that because, hey, this is the way it's been. For how long? We have such a small view of history. Like, how long, how, how long has it been Idaho? I don't know, because I didn't go look up the dates, but I bet, it's, I bet it's less than we've been a nation. Right? Oh, this is just the way we do it. 200 years old, or what are our, well, we are, 1776 to now? Do the math. Right? You can tell I'm a history major. <laughs> Not really. This is just the way it is. This is the way we do it. This is the best thing to ever, man, we, we've been a, we're a wisp of smoke on the, on the timeline of history, right? But, oh, our view of it is, is, oh, we got perspective. We got, no, 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 we don't. That's why we argue about the existence of God, right? Like, so, so that one of the major arguments about the existence of God is suffering and evil in the world. Oh, man, people, I, I've, got a, I've got a buddy. That's one of his things. He'd bring it up almost every time I talked to him. You know, if, if the God of the Bible existed, well, there'd be no such thing as suffering or evil. And think about it. The whole timeline of the Bible, there's suffering and evil all over it. The whole course of history, suffering and evil all over it. The argument goes something like this. Because suffering and evil exist, the God of the Bible, the eternal God that's revealed in the Bible, can't possibly exist. Because if that God of the Bible existed, evil obviously wouldn't exist. If, if, if a powerful God, an almighty God exists but suffering and evil exist, then he must not be a loving God. Thus, the, Bible, the God of the Bible doesn't exist. If, if a loving God that's, that's uh, compassionate and merciful in all his ways exists, but suffering and evil exist, then wait a minute, he can't be powerful enough to do anything about suffering. That's what we come up with our, with our logic, with our small perspective, until we turn to the Bible and a book like Revelation that shows us what we can't possibly see unless he shows it to us. It's actually showing us that he has a solution to evil and suffering, and he is working it, his plan, in his time, and by his means, and for his glory, and our good. But we have to come. We have to be, we have to be in it. We have to see it revealed. We have to hear it read. We have to listen to it. We have to read it ourselves. We have to walk in line with it. This is, this is his revelation of his plan to put, end, put, to, put to an end evil and suffering, to demonstrate, how, uh, to, to, to build a world that's filled with his glory in which his rule is not contested or rebelled against in any way. This is his work and he is revealing it to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And, 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 and then we see the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. This is a revelation from our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three of them are mentioned in these first eight verses. But this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't, we shouldn't come to this letter and suddenly think, oh, you know, finally the Holy Spirit's doing something. Or finally he's talking about Jesus. The Trinity, the triune God, has been everywhere in all of our studies. Not always explicitly called out, but always there. From Genesis to, to Revelation. From Genesis, God speaking the world into creation. The Spirit hovering over the water. Then we come to the book of John. And what does John tell us in his opening verses? The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was created apart from the Word. And this Word became flesh. Oh, that's Jesus. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all present at the creation all functioning in the covenants among his people, explicitly happening inside the, the work of salvation, such that God the Father calls his people to him. Jesus puts on flesh, lives sinlessly, dies sacrificially, pouring out his blood for the establishment of a new covenant, Rises, raises victorious, putting an end to death, 
And then he ascends and sits down at the Father's right hand. But what did he do once he went back and ascended? He says, I'm going to send send another, the Spirit, the Spirit of comfort, the Spirit that's going to point you to me, the Holy Spirit, who now applies the truth to our lives and sanctifies us in our walk. The triune God at work through all of the Scripture. Now we come to Revelation and we see it again. Why, Why should we be surprised? We shouldn't. The Father, the primary source, which is, is, is the, the first part of this chain, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So re- re- referencing the distinction between Jesus and God, not denying Jesus' di- divinity, but recognizing that there is an equal um, person to God, Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And you jump down to verse four, and you hear it. John to seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father again. In fact, I wouldn't have known this because we lose sight of it in the English, but in the original languages, this would have been an immediate cue to recognize the God who is, the I am of the Exodus passages where God tells Moses when he says, who, who, who am I supposed to say sending me? I am. I am eternally existent. This threefold reference is a reference all the way back to that. To him who loves us. Or, I'm sorry, to, to him who is, who was, and who is to come. It's again the, a call to God the Father. But then again in verse 6, and, and, and he made us a kingdom of priests to who? To God the Father. Over and over, we're, we're being centered around and drawn to see the, the ma- magnificence and the preeminence. God the Father being the source. But then we get, get to see the, the Holy Spirit. You're like, I didn't hear anything about the Holy Spirit. Him who is, who was to come, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, again, I don't want us always off in weeds and trying to figure this out, but I want you to see something. I want you to, I want you to grasp hold of this. Because already in the introduction, we are dealing with some of the symbology and some of the, the metaphor, some of the intricacies of this letter that that caused some people to face it with fear and and I just couldn't understand it that phrase the seven spirits who are before his throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit who who else who else can be a source of grace and peace in fact there's nowhere else in the Bible that refers to anyone but God as a source of grace and peace Seven is used repeatedly in the book of Revelation to demonstrate wholeness, to demonstrate fullness, to to show completion. It's the number of God. It's actually all the way through the scripture, but Revelation is heightened on it. The number of sevens, the number of, of courses of seven repeatedly shown to demonstrate fullness and wholeness. So not everybody agrees with this, but I think this is a clear demonstration that that the Holy Spirit is as involved in this work of bringing grace and peace to God's people as as any other part of the Trinity. But then we see Jesus clearly over and over, the central figure. Jesus Christ is the one that brings this revelation, sends an angel with it to John. Jesus Christ is the one who's pointed out in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. His people over and over had been commissioned to be witnesses that demonstrate his glory and his grace, to live as his image bearers on the earth. And he's the one that was faithful. He was the one that in spite of it costing him his life, he never denounced the glory of his father. He never sinned against his father. He never turned and went his own way. He is the faithful witness. He is our example in that. But he is also the firstborn among many brothers, right? He is the one who overcame the firstborn of the dead because he was the faithful witness. If he had sinned and gone another way, then he'd be no different than David. He'd be no different than Moses. He'd be no different than, than Abraham. He'd be no different than Adam. But being that he was faithful, he lived to the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant so that when he dies, he rises, the firstborn of the dead, so that in many ways, he is our older brother. He is the one that paves the way. He is the one that ends death. He, he overcomes death with death, right? Like he puts an end to it for his people. And then it shows 
him as the ruler of kings on the earth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is preeminent. He holds all authority. In fact, he claims that himself at the very end of his life on the earth. He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. It all belongs to me. Like I can, I, can, I can say sun rise and the sun rises. I can say blind man see and the blind man sees. I can say lame woman walk and the lame woman walks. I can say dead person live and the dead person lives. But what did he call us to? Go be my witnesses. Make disciples. Right? Like this, this, it's his authority. He's the one who calls us to, to these things. We live under that authority every day. This is God's revelation. It, it, it's, it's his revelation from our triune God, right? Like it came from him to his covenant people. It would be easy if, if we just stopped here and said, okay, well, uh, this is from God. Let's, 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 let's see what he had to, to say to these people that lived all this time ago, about 2,000 years ago. But I don't think that's what John's saying at all. He does call out the seven churches that are in Asia, right? He specifically says them. Sir, he, he, he says, hey, seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. But here's that number seven again. Obviously, there's more than seven churches in Asia that God cares about, that wants to have grace and peace. Obviously, there's a concern of God to have his people in, that, that are beginning to be seen expound, or, or, or expand all the way out to Spain. Surely God has a concern for them. His church in North Africa, does he not care about them? Like the Christianity has moved to these places, Right? There's an Ethiopian that, that is met on the road that, uh, oh man, I'm going to forget his name. Philip speaks to the, to the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, shares God from Isaiah, and he wants to get baptized immediately. You think God doesn't care about him or don't want him to know grace and peace? No, it, here's the clue. It's that number seven again. John to the seven churches. And we're going to see this happen over and over and over through this letter as we come to deal with things like this. He's writing with seven churches in mind that are representative of every church from every time. Every, every church from every time. This is a letter to his covenant people, to the people of Christ. Words to bring comfort and hope, to bring an announcement of promise, to bring clarity to the, to the world that they live in. But it continues to be the same for us today. He calls them servants. In fact, the word is doulos, and, and really translated, it's slave. You know, immediately when we hear that, oh man, a slave, that's, I don't want to be a slave. That's bad. Slavery is bad, unless you're a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, and then it's glorious. Because alongside that idea of being a servant or a slave to God, is loved and freed. So we see it in verse one, to the servants, to, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. But then jump down to verse five, and you see it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Loved, it's, that, it, it, it's, this, it's the verb form of agape. It's the idea of this sacrificial, beneficial Effort that is worked on behalf of someone else. That's not conditioned upon that person. It's conditioned upon the person who expresses it. It's conditioned upon him being Jesus, him being God. We are loved by the one who we're servant to. And we're freed from our sins. It almost sounds counter to, counterintuitive to us because when we think of freedom, we automatically move. Oh man, I get to do what I want now. I'm my own God, my own authority. No. We're freed from our sin to live under his authority. And then he calls us kingdom and priests. If you just follow it through, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. He's the one that made us a people. He's the one that's connected us to one another. In fact, this is exactly what Peter's getting at when he's writing his letter to the New, Te to, to the New Testament church. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see that? As you come to him, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
You're a kingdom of priests is what he's getting at. Like you're a, a people, every one of you, male, female, alike. You carry God's spirit with you for God's purpose. You have a, a mission, a, a part of his plan to work out to be representatives of his name. To offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And he is the one establishing us as his people. We are in him a kingdom and we are in him priests. We belong to him. We are his dominion. We are. Not, it, it's not a land. It's not, a, it, it's, it's not built upon borders. But he is the king of his people. And until the new creation is actually completed and the land is actually provided and we walk into that place forever, we dwell in a place that is not our home. As strangers and aliens, citizens of his kingdom, eternal kingdom. This, this is his revelation. Our triune God has revealed it to us so that we can see as his covenant people, his consummating work. He tells it right off the beginning, right off the bat, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. What must soon take place. The content of this letter is what God is going to do. To tie all the threads of history up. To tie all the promises that he has made up into this pretty little bow. To present this gift to himself and for his people. He's been making promises since the foundation of the world. You know what the first promise God ever made was? Just think about it for a second. If you think about it, you shout it out, shout it out. The very first promise. You eat that fruit, you will die. And what happened? Did he fulfill that promise? Yeah, because now we all die. You know the second promise he made, at least biblically speaking, in the course of the narrative? It was to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise is to Adam and Eve, or to Adam, you eat the fruit, you're going to die. The second promise to the serpent. And as soon as Adam and Eve hear it, and we studied this when we went through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, as soon as Adam and Eve hear it, they begin to understand immediately, we're not going to die today. But we are going to be sent out into exile and we are going to face death. They started taking the time. I mean, they're going to die. But they also did something else. They began to look for a son. One who was going to be born to deliver them from the, way, from, from the curse that the serpent brought to them through their sin. Through the temptation and testing, they began to look for a son. And they didn't just look for it. You can see that actually trace itself out after Cain and Abel are born and Cain kills Abel. And they start looking for another son. They realize these, uh, they, these aren't the sons. They start looking for another son, and they have their third son that's listed in the scripture. Seth is born to them, and they're ecstatic and excited, looking forward to the fact that this may be the son who crushes the head of the serpent. And Seth dies, and the line goes on, and it goes on and on and on. And we see that promise of a son continue to the point that Abraham, who wants a child, who looks for an heir, but can't, his, his wife can't give him children, God promises him a son, Right? And we see the immediate beginning to be fulfilled, the immediate process of, of this fulfillment of his promises that through your son, I'm going to bless many nations. And, and, and Isaiah gives way to Jacob. And we see this way in which God begins to work and begins to, in, in a typological way, begins to fulfill this promise. But even they recognize his, his promises aren't fulfilled. To the point that by the time David is king, he is promised a son to sit on his throne forever. They're still looking for this son. They're looking for this son of promise that's going to end the, the, the trial and the struggle and the pain and the suffering and the evil. They're looking for the solution. We're looking for this son to the points that the prophets are promising it. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. They're looking for that. They're, for 700 years they waited looking and Christ comes and the angels say this is him. And what did they do? They rejected him. And Daniel he has these massive visions that God tells him are for the latter days, for the end times. And he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. 
looking for a son. And here we come to Revelation. And we finally see the son. His name is Jesus. The faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Look at this son. He is the fulfillment. And as we study through the book of Revelation, I think you already know what's about to happen. He is about to destroy the serpent. He is going to go to war with the the dragon, the serpent of old, and he is going to put him in his place. He is going to crush his head. This is the consummation of all of God's work. He has been about doing it all through history, and he has promised and he is showing us that he will complete it. This letter is a revelation from our triune God to his covenant people about his work to consummate his kingdom promises for his glory and our good. And this is really where the rubber meets the road for you and me. Why we need to be considering it today. Because this is for his glory and our good. For all the reasons we might look at this book of the Bible right? Like, oh, I got to figure out what, what the dragon was. I got to figure out what the woman was. I got to figure out what this symbol means. I got to define the times. I, I got to figure out what my newspaper headlines are meaning by, by the, if, if we could just, we almost approach it as if it's like a decoder ring, right? You guys remember the Christmas story. Just needed my little Annie decoder ring and wanted to tell him, drink more Ovaltine. That's always going to leave us hopeless. It's always going to leave us empty. It's always going to leave us in a place where there's more questions and there's all these problems. If we just would, would come to it recognizing this letter is given to us for our good and his glory. In fact, over and over and over, we'll see it's a letter that calls us to worship to see him high and exalted and lifted up, that calls us to to a place in which we are enthralled and in awe of the God who is, who was, and is to come. I mean, this section ends with a a proclamation of praise and worship. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty It's to show him high and lifted up. This is what God has been about since the very beginning. Everything he has done is for his glory. The creation declares his glory, Psalm 19.1. Right? It pours forth speech. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. His faithfulness to his people. is to the glory of his name. 1 Samuel 12.22 For the Lord will not forsake his people. That means he will be faithful for his great name's sake. We, 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 we make ourselves the center of everything so much. And, and God's going to be faithful to me because of me. God's going to be faithful to you because that's who God is. Faithful. He will not forsake his name because he is glorious. Because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It's pleased him. It's for his pleasure. Right? Even even his enemies are raised up and given position and power for his glory. You you think Babylon was an accident or an oversight of God? How about Biden? I know I'm speaking to mostly conservative people. How about Biden? You think it was an oversight? You think the election got stolen from him? How about Trump? Oh, I, I, he's God's man, isn't he? Mm, they all are. He holds the hearts of leaders in his hands. He directs them like rivers, the scripture tells us. Maybe the clearest enemy of his in all of scripture is the devil. Even that, show, he, we're shown it's, he's a lion on a leash. But the, 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 the physical representation of that might be Pharaoh. Romans 9, 17, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh doesn't even come to power on his own. You get it? Oh, he did a lot of stuff. He went after a lot of things. He was born in the right line. Who gave him power? For this purpose, I have raised you up. 
that I might show my power in you. Not your power, not your wit, not your, not your position, not your ability, not your strength, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh wasn't even there for Pharaoh's sake as much as he thought he was, as blind and deluded and evil a man as he was. He was not there for his own sake. He was there for the glory of God, that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I can't tell you that Pharaoh's name. I can just call him Pharaoh. But God is still proclaimed everywhere. That kingdom ended centuries ago. But his is forever. Even his enemies. And his salvation. Oh, man, we're beneficiaries. Yeah, man, I love the idea of salvation. We are so blessed. We could talk about so much. The Lord is my shepherd, right? We can, we can proclaim those things. We can talk about we are children of God. We can talk about those things. We can talk about how loved we are. But if we stop at us, we're missing the point of salvation. Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace is the purpose of your salvation. Ephesians 1.14, and just, just in case we didn't catch it, the first, first verse in, in that proclamation, he says it again. Ephesians 1.14, who is the, the Jesus, who is the, or no, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Salvation is something you are blessed and benefited by immensely. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But you and I are not the central purpose of it. He is doing these things to his glory, and he will consummate his kingdom in his time and in his way to the glory of his name. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory. It's to his glory. It's a book of worship to call out how glorious he is. Now, if we approach this simply trying to define all the signs and all the symbols so that we can know what's going on, we miss a major portion of the book to cause us to fall flat on our face before this awesome God. It's actually interesting because we, we walk up to these things with so much pride and arrogance. When we're going to see John's reaction in a couple of weeks. John falls flat. Daniel, as he's having these visions, he falls flat and doesn't even want to talk. The shepherds, when the angels appear, are they're just freaking out because they recognize that the small and insignificant against the glorious nature of the God who is. This is a letter that reveals to us what God is doing so that we can see his glory. And I know because we live in a world that likes to talk about narcissism, for a lot of people, that's why, well, man, that's, you know, he's the greatest narcissist ever. Nope. The problem with narcissism is that we're, nar we're the narcissists, right? Like, we're trying to be God. We're trying to be glorious and demand everybody recognize our glory. The reason that this doesn't apply to God is because he's truly glorious. He can actually sustain being the center and the preeminent one in every one of our lives. In fact, if we don't recognize his glory we will never know his good in a benevolent and beneficial way. His glory is our good. His glory is the best thing for us. It's better that he be glorified in our lives than that we make him a, a Santa that answers our requests as we need him or that we come to him time in. Ah, uh, you know, I, life is difficult, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and read my Bible and pray today. That'll never work. It's recognizing his glory, living in awe of him, committing our lives to his glory that is our good. And this is seated, these two ideas are seated right next to each other all the way through this. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ to show to his servants. He's showing us the glory of Christ. Why? Because we need to see it, because it's for our good. He goes on, he's gonna, he's gonna give to us, he wants us to experience his glory grace and peace, right? So verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. God wants us to know his unmerited good, his undeserved benevolence, his unearned inheritance. He wants us to experience it. 
but we won't experience it apart from knowing his glory. They are united. They're one and the same. They're connected. He wants us to know the peace that passes understanding. But we will only know that peace if we look to the sovereign God who is, who was, and is to come. The one who's God Almighty. And here's a, we're, we're going we're gonna to build this out more next week. The reason we're coming back to this section next week is verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed are those who hear and keep it. God wants you to know his blessing. But here's what we end up doing. Here's what we end up We look at that word and we mean that's something that God's given us. And we make it something that, that is oh, this is tangible thing that I can hold on to. We're going to look at this more next week. That word actually means happy. Did you know your God wants you to be happy? Yes. He wants you to be holy. And he knows in that holiness you will be more happy. But he is not immune or ignoring the fact. Hard place to live. And he wants us to know the joy of walking with him. And so he gives us this letter so that we can know it. More about that next week. So here we are. Let's finish it off. Let's go ahead and just say it one more time, right? Like This is a revelation from our triune God to his covenant people about his work to consummate his kingdom promises for his glory and our good so that we can see his glory and know his grace and experience his peace and be happy in a world that doesn't really know what it means to be happy. Right? That's, that's what he's promised us. And in Christ, that is ours. You can have it. You can know it. And this letter given specifically with that purpose in mind. But we got to recognize the flip side. Because we're sitting in a room where we've walked in lots of religion and lots of people thinking, maybe even accidentally telling kids, just do good and God will love you. Just measure up. Just earn your place. You need to hear this. You can't earn it. You can't attain it. All you can do is turn to him and trust in the one who he's given it to. His name is Jesus. Turn to him. Trust him. Follow him. Repent of your sins. Lean into him. Rest in him. And then wait to watch him consummate his work as he works in you, among us, and through us in this fallen and sinful world. Let's pray.